0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is friendly influences. In the first half, Ronald A. Rasband shares his address Thy friends do stand by thee. Then in the second half, Peter M. Johnson speaks on faith, family, and friendship.
1: I pray that my remarks will be guided by the Holy Ghost, and that you will feel in your own hearts that what I have to say tonight has relevancy to what you are facing and what you are experiencing at this time in your lives. Many years ago, in March of 1839, the Prophet Joseph Smith, with several of his companions, had been wrongfully incarcerated for months at Liberty Jail. Many writers of Church history have said that this experience for the Prophet Joseph was certainly one of the most difficult and darkest periods of his entire life. His words, O God, where art thou, as recorded in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, speak of a desperate loneliness in the bleakest of settings. Now the Lord did not appear or send angels. He did not thrash the guards or swing wide the door of that damp, dirty cell. Put simply, he did not change the circumstances. But he spoke comfort and reassurance to Joseph like no other could. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. It was as if the Lord put his arm around Joseph when he said, my son. Those are precious and tender words. And Then he put a timetable on Joseph's hardship, a small moment. What a lesson for all of us to remember. Our hardships will be brief in eternal terms, and the Lord will be right there. Then the Lord said this, Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again, with warm hearts and friendly hands. Here was Joseph locked in jail by the treachery of men, some of whom had once been his close associates. But the Lord made the point so clear, Thy friends do stand by thee. How comforting that declaration was to the Prophet Joseph! How comforting to us! Think for a minute what it means to you to know you have someone standing right by you, someone you can trust to be your friend on good days and bad, someone who values you and supports you even when the two of you are apart. Our most prized friend is Jesus Christ Himself. Is there any greater assurance than His? I will be on your right hand and on your left, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. So often, those angels round about are our friends. My message tonight centers on the importance in each of our lives of righteous friendships. In my youth, an inspired patriarch laid his hands on my head and by revelation opened to me an understanding of my potential, for who I really am and gave a direction for my life just like a patriarch has done for most of you. I was told that I would not lack for friends and associates, that their friendship would be a special blessing to me both temporally as well as spiritually. I was counseled to select for my closest friends those who were righteous and had a desire to keep the commandments of God. That passage from my patriarchal blessing and the verse from section 121 have been like a comfort blanket to me throughout my life. At times, especially while living away from home, those words have given me a peace and strength. My friends were standing by, although separated by many miles, and at such times I learned one of life's most important lessons—that, no matter how long I was away, No matter how great the distance, whenever my friends and I met again, it was as if nothing had changed. We picked up our lives where we left off, and it was as if time had stood still. Now why do I emphasize that? Because in today's world so many people willingly trade those friendships for video characters and quick text messages. They spend their time identifying with television personalities, who for them are only faces on a screen. They are choosing to hang out rather than commit to a deep and meaningful relationship that can be sealed in the temple for eternity. Think about it. True friendships are based on love of God and sharing that love with others. That was one of the messages in Liberty Jail. From my earliest days growing up in the Cottonwood Stake in the Salt Lake Valley, friends have been a special blessing to me. The closest friends made in my youth remain my friends to this day. Some are here with us tonight. It has always been that way. We have always been there for each other, and I have been grateful to make new friends who have been a strength and blessing to me as well. When I think of friendship, I think of the example of President Thomas S. Monson. Consider this teaching of our beloved prophet. He said, Friends help to determine your future. You will tend to be like them and to be found where they choose to go. Remember the path we follow in this life leads to the path we follow in the next. In a survey made in selected wards and stakes of the Church, we learned a most significant fact. Those persons whose friends married in the temple usually married in the temple, while those persons whose friends did not marry in the temple usually did not marry in the temple. This same fact pertained also to full-time missionary service. The influence of one's friends appeared to be a highly dominant factor even equal to parental urging, classroom instruction, or proximity to a temple. The friends you choose will either help or hinder your success. Those are sobering words. Who wouldn't choose President Monson as a friend? He gives away his trains at Christmas time. He gives the clothes off his back and the shoes off his feet to people who don't have any. He gives countless hours to those so often forgotten in care centers or struggling for life in hospitals. And he shares his joy for life with all of us when he wiggles his ears. (laughs) What's not to like? When a group of missionaries were asked to identify one of President Monson's greatest attributes, almost all chose his love for people. One even suggested he wished he could live next door to the prophet because he knew they would then become good friends. I have found the Brethren's counsel on Friendship to ring true with my own experience and be particularly applicable today. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, Whether young or old, we need to be good friends, but also to pick our friends carefully. By choosing the Lord first, choosing one's friends becomes easier and much safer. Consider the contrasting friendships in the city of Enoch compared to peers in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The citizens of the city of Enoch chose Jesus and a way of life, and then became everlasting friends. So much depends on whom and what We seek first. Some friends are wise and trusted mentors. They are a special kind of friend. They have gone before us and they know the way. And they too stand by us. Who were Joseph Smith's mentors? Moroni comes immediately to mind. Ancient disciples, John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, Paul. Joseph's mother and father, his brother Alvin—the list is impressive. It is fair to say he was found in good company. Consider for a minute those who have mentored each of you. Do you desire to mentor others as opportunities come in the future? Are you preparing to share your testimony of the gospel and your grasp of how to be successful in our everyday pursuits? history and the scriptures are full of examples of men and women who have served as righteous mentors. Perhaps the most obvious is our Lord Jesus Christ. As He established His Church in the meridian of time, at the beginning of His ministry, He selected twelve seemingly ordinary men who left their normal occupations and spent three years in His company. They traveled with him, listened to his sermons, ate meals with him, witnessed the miracles he performed, and were the recipients of many private moments of instruction. What an unparalleled blessing it was for them to be personally tutored by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Each of them was personally changed by that privileged association. Another example, in a somewhat unusual reversal of roles, is Joseph Smith, who became a spiritual mentor to his older brother Hiram. Hiram, humble and teachable, stood by Joseph's side. He was there in Liberty Jail, and he fell first at Carthage. Hiram chose as his mentor the prophet of God. He chose well. In our day— and in my service as a General Authority, members of the Quorum of the Twelve take a profound interest in our lives, generously conveying to us their experiences and effectively teaching us how to fulfill our sacred summons to this ministry. Two such precious moments to me are shown here as I was blessed by the mentoring love of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland and Elder Neil A. Maxwell. I also remember a comment made by Brigham Young when he said of the Prophet Joseph, I feel like shouting Hallelujah all the time when I think that I ever knew Joseph Smith the Prophet. I have felt that way about a number of the leaders of our day. In each case, a more experienced, trusted individual serves as an effective guide an advisor to a less experienced person, helping to shape that person's understanding and teaching principles that will make him or her more effective, stronger, wiser, and more valuable as a servant of God. Pause for a minute now and think, who has mentored you? What have you learned from them that is life-changing? How have they watched over you? How will you take their example and be a mentor yourself to younger brothers and sisters, friends and colleagues, those who may need and desire such a relationship? Let me give you an example from my own life. I have been blessed to have such dear friend-mentor relationships in my life with Elder John M. Huntsman, Area 70, philanthropist, benefactor, founder of the Huntsman Group of Companies, and my friend. I first met John Huntsman in 1975 when I was 24 years old. I was an elders quorum president for a University of Utah married student ward, and John Huntsman was my high council advisor. We became friends, and in my senior year as I was preparing to conclude my education at the university, Brother Huntsman recruited me as a sales representative in his plastics company. One of my very first assigned accounts was Avon, the cosmetic giant headquartered in New York City. To get me started with that important client, Brother Huntsman personally accompanied me to New York City for my initial introduction. Excited to be entering into a new career and anxious to make a good impression, I wore my best college brown suit, with a brown tie and brown loafers. When we met at the airport, I noticed that Mr. Huntsman gave me a peculiar look, but he didn't say anything. As we arrived in New York City, he told me there was a stop we needed to make before calling upon Avon. We went directly to a famous men's clothing store known as Brooks Brothers on swanky Madison Avenue. On the way, I recall John Huntsman saying to me, Now, Ron, if you are going to be a salesman in my company and if you are going to represent me to Avon, you are going to learn how to dress, how to act, and how to serve in this new role. And Then he added, You don't wear brown suits in a business environment in New York City. Not representing John Huntsman, at least. John knew the people at Brooks Brothers, and he watched as they fitted me with a beautiful dark gray pinstripe suit—the nicest I had ever seen, and certainly the nicest I had ever owned. After it was taken away to be tailored for a perfect fit, we picked out a shirt, some ties, a belt, and all the accessories. Next we went to the shoe department where John introduced me to my very first pair of wingtip black dress shoes. I guess Brother Huntsman's account at Brooks Brothers gave him special privileges, because after we had lunch, he returned with me to the store where my new business wardrobe was ready, courtesy of John M. Huntsman. I remember my gratitude to John for sparing me the needless embarrassment of showing up in my college clothes. As I stuffed, and that's exactly what I did, stuffed my brown outfit into a bag, I realized we had made, he had made sure I was properly dressed. Then it was off to Avon where John introduced me as their new account representative from his company. John was teaching me much more than the importance of looking the part. He was introducing me into a whole new way of thinking, of doing things, of representing myself to others. He was mentoring me. This was the first of many such valuable lessons I learned from him. Years later, while serving as an executive in Brother Huntsman's company, I was very involved in my duties which took me around the globe. Returning from one of these business trips, Brother Huntsman, a stake president at this time, asked me what I was doing in the Church. I told him I was happily teaching a gospel doctrine class in Sunday school. He asked me what kinds of experiences I had had in Church leadership. I told him I had enjoyed serving in several presidencies, but most of my Church service very happily had been in teaching. After I had explained this to Brother Huntsman, he told me of a similar time in his life when he had been called to serve in a student stake, first as a high counselor and later as a bishop. He found it ideal for his busy schedule. In fact, as I mentioned earlier in this message, that was where I first met John Huntsman. He said he knew a brother at the University of Utah who was serving as the stake president of one of the university married stakes. Who could fill Church service positions with brethren from across the Salt Lake Valley. Brother Huntsman asked if he might phone this stake president and let him know of my name. I agreed and really did not think of it again, knowing how busy he was. Sometime later I received a call from Robert Fotheringham, the president of the University of Utah First Stake he asked if he and his counselors might come to our home and visit with Sister Rasband and me. Not many days later, all three of the stake presidency was sitting on the couch in our living room inquiring about our situation and feeling our testimonies. After a searching interview with each of us, the three men looked at each other knowingly, and the stake president then extended a call to me to serve as a member of the University First Stake High Council. They said they would already talked to my resident stake president and that he felt fine about the call if they should want to move forward. I accepted that call and began my service in the University First Stake. As a part of my assignment, Sister Rasband and our young family enjoyed a wonderful opportunity to develop choice, Christ-centered relationships with the young married students. After serving for a period of time on the High Council, I was called as the bishop of the tenth ward in that stake. I later found out that Brother Huntsman did call President Fotheringham and simply suggested that he knew someone who might do well in a university campus setting. Hence my dear friend and mentor, John Huntsman, merely by mentioning my name for a possible interview, provided another kind of experience for me. In church service. I think of the wonderful young people I met in that university ward, in that entire setting, and the opportunity I had to assist several of them in finding employment themselves, one who is here with us tonight. Most importantly, I had the privilege of bearing witness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and establish righteous friendships in a way similar to what Brother Huntsman. Did for me. Later, when Sister Rasband and I were called to preside over the New York-New York North Mission, we enjoyed the privilege of working with many faithful missionaries. We were able to help them not only be more effective in their current callings as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, but our connection has continued to this day as we assist them with letters of recommendation, counsel, encouragement, and all of our love. I do have to admit, I have not bought anyone a new suit and wingtips—yet. As these few examples show, I am a very strong believer in mentor-friendship relationships. Elder Neal A. Maxwell, who served as a mentor for so many, including me, said each of us from time to time is mentored and has chances to mentor. In my experience, truthful and caring one-liners that occur within such nurturing relationships have a long shelf life. You can probably recount three or four examples of how people have said something, probably a sentence or clause, and you remember it still. It moves and touches you still. I think of the young mother who always said to her children when times were tough, We can do this. They believed her. Or the missionary, who told his new companion, fresh from the MTC, expect a miracle every day. He did, and that faith set the course of the new elder's mission. Or President Monson concluding his message and acknowledging a young man eight rows back in a sea of 5,000 youth, assembled at an East Coast Scout Jamboree. That young man was my twelve-year-old son, whom he had met on several occasions. Believe me, my son will never forget that President Monson called him by name and said, Chris Rasband, come up here and say hello. And what greater example than the Savior, who looked at a humble group of fishermen and said these simple words? follow me." In this day and time, described by the Apostle Paul as a perilous time, recorded by the Prophet Joseph Smith as a day of calamity, described by Nephi in the Book of Mormon as a day when the adversary would rage in the hearts of the children of men, I suggest to all of you, my dear young friends, the importance of developing sound and wonderful friendships with wise and trusted mentors. Sometimes we are reluctant to receive counsel. We push back from someone offering us suggestions. We get the notion that we already know what we need to know. Pride gets in the way. When that occurs, we forfeit the wisdom, information, or experience which would otherwise bless our lives. Imagine the difference it might have made in my relationship with Brother Huntsman or in my career if I had been too proud to accept his generous offer of a new suit. This is often the case in our youthful relationships with our parents, whom we sometimes think of as old-fashioned, uninformed, or simply not cool. So, at times, it is easy to dismiss their teachings as irrelevant in our lives. The statement attributed to Mark Twain can be instructive to us. When I was a boy of fourteen, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be twenty-one, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, have a lot to offer. Do not discount what their experiences have taught them and the love they have for you. They are perhaps your ultimate earthly mentors. Sister Rasband and I now treasure the opportunity we have to be grandparents. What a thrill it is when our grandchildren ask us a question or seek some direction on some important matter in their lives. Others who may have valuable input but who we on occasion tend to ignore are our in-laws. Their experiences are often as pertinent as those of our parents. We would do well to respect their opinions and give consideration to their input. Now, Many of you do not have in-laws yet, but I am confident you will someday. Take time to learn from them and solicit their opinions. Doing so will certainly add to your own wisdom. Now for each one of you within the sound of my voice and those who will read this message later, there are many other potential mentors available to you. Let me suggest a few. Bishops, stake presidents, mission presidents, quorum leaders, professors, seminary and institute teachers, trusted friends and colleagues, Relief Society sisters, and many others. I have been benefited from so many of their examples and teachings, and so have you. Take full advantage of their ideas and let their influence inspire and bless your lives. It would be difficult to exaggerate the importance of being good friends. Becoming such friends is not always easy. Ralph Waldo Emerson gave great counsel when he observed, The only way to have a friend is to be one. And the old cliché, birds of a feather flock together, is still true. To have friends who live high standards, who stand for virtue and goodness, who are faithful and true to their covenants, you must be such a person to them. In this world where there is so much sleaze, permissiveness, and immorality, having good friends will go a long way in ensuring our ability to withstand the evils of this our day. For those who are still single, having good friends will put you in a position to attract the kind of eternal companion you will hope to find. Such was the case with Sister Rasband. We were first great friends. An invitation for marriage came later. As we think of friendship, think of what the Prophet Joseph Smith saw in a vision and recorded of the Apostles preaching in England. I saw the twelve Apostles of the Lamb, who are now upon the earth who hold the keys of this last ministry in foreign lands, standing together in a circle, much fatigued, with their clothes tattered and feet swollen, with their eyes cast downward, and Jesus standing in their midst, and they did not behold Him, the Savior looked upon them and wept. Though they did not see Him, Jesus stood by them. Aware of their plight and sympathetic to their hardship, it was His loving support that sustained them in their mission and brought hundreds and thousands of new converts into the Church. It was the Savior who said to His disciples, Ye are my friends. It was the Savior who taught, Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. It was the Savior who beckoned, Come unto me. In friendship, as in every other principle of the gospel, Jesus Christ is our exemplar. Now my dear young new friends, gathered throughout the world, I bear my testimony to you at this time that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear witness that a very important element of your experience in the gospel is the friends you make and the mentors you follow, just as I was promised in my patriarchal blessing at nineteen years of age. I close tonight where I began, with the verse of Scripture spoken by God to the Prophet Joseph when he was in Liberty Jail, and suggest this could equally be spoken to you and to me, in whatever condition we find ourselves at this time. Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands." I reaffirm this promise given by the Lord in the early days of the restoration of this Church. I pray that each of us will have the privilege of enjoying righteous friendships and mentoring relationships as we grow together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These thoughts and words I leave with you tonight. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our friend, amen
0: we have been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Friendly Influences. We've just heard from Ronald A. Rasband. After the break, we'll return with Peter M. Johnson for Faith, Family, and Friendship. is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Friendly Influences. Next is Peter M. Johnson, BYU Assistant Professor of Accounting at the time of this address, titled Faith, Family, and Friendship.
2: Good morning, my brothers and sisters. I begin by telling you a little bit about myself and in the process sharing with you my testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the three key ingredients we need to ensure happiness and peace in this life and a taste of what life will be like in our heavenly home. I grew up in a Creensboro of New York City. New York City is a wonderful place full of excitement and entertainment and as a youth I was heavily involved with rap music and my brother and I belonged to a group called CBS. No, it's not the television station but the acronym CBS stood for Can't Be Stopped. We thought the name was cool. We traveled throughout New York City performing at wedding receptions, high school dances, and block parties. And during the summer months, we had different rap groups visit our neighborhood to perform free concerts. Most of the youth involved with rap visited the parks to listen and at time compete with the other rap groups. Often, however, these free concerts attracted drug deals and promoted random violence. It was during the summer of my 14th year that a random violent event occurred which I will not go into at this time, but it provided me an opportunity to leave New York City and change the course of my life forever. I was fortunate that during that time, my mother, who lived in Hawaii, decided to send the family money and invited all the children to move with her to Hawaii. The money came at the right time, and within a week, I purchased a one-way ticket to Hawaii. When I arrived in Hawaii, I recognized quickly the many differences from New York City, the clear blue water from the ocean and the fresh, cool breeze at night. I also recognized the many different nationalities and cultures. And after attending my first day of Mililani High School, I came home and told my mother that it felt like I attended a United Nations meeting and that I represented Africa. (laughs) During the first few weeks of high school, the basketball coach noticed I was one of the tallest young men on campus and invited me to try out for the basketball team. While living in New York, I didn't play much basketball as I enjoyed baseball and was on a bowling team. I had never played on a basketball team. I believe it was because of my height that I started on a varsity team as a sophomore. We won three basketball games that year, and everyone in the community was excited because it was three more games than the team had won the year before. (laughs) In my junior year, we won six basketball games, and by the time I was a senior, we won 14 games and became the Western Division champions and advanced to the Hawaii State playoffs. Due to the success of my senior year, I was recruited to play basketball for the BYU-Hawaii campus. All I knew about BYU-Hawaii was that it was a church school similar to a Notre Dame or St. Mary's University. At the start of my fall semester, I was instructed by my academic advisor that I needed to take several religion courses to graduate from BYU-Hawaii. For my first semester, I decided to take the New Testament. And for the first time, I began to understand, in part, the importance of a savior. While living in New York, I was a converted Muslim. The Islamic faith regarded Jesus Christ as a great prophet or a great man similar to Moses or Abraham. I did not realize the importance of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice until I read about his life in the book of Luke. I studied how the Savior healed the sick, raised the dead, made the blind to see and the deaf to hear. Will you imagine for a minute that we all lived during the time of the Savior? We watched from a distance as he performed the many miracles, called his apostles, and fed the 4,000. We also watched as he took upon him the sins of the world. In Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 44, it reads, And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. The word want means usually. Often when the Savior wanted to be alone, he visited the Mount of Olives and other similar places to pray. The scripture continues, And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. Imagine the Savior instructing his apostles to pray to overcome temptation. And that he withdrew himself about a stone's cast around 30 to 40 yards and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I believe the Savior at this moment knew that he was about to take upon him the sins of the world and ask, Father, if there is another way that a sacrifice could be made, but if not, let thy will be done. And there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The Savior felt the pains of our sins. You know how it feels when you have made a mistake and your heart begins to ache? The Savior felt our heartache and our feelings of guilt and anguish. He took upon him the sins of all mankind, my sins, your sins, and the sins of all those who lived before and the sins of all those who live after us. And the pain was so great that it caused the Savior, even Jesus Christ, to bleed from every pore of his body. Well, you know the rest of the story. Judas betrays the Savior with a kiss, and Jesus suffers more pain before he is nailed to the cross. The Savior suffered death so that we might have life. As the fall semester progressed, I was introduced to the missionaries, they visited my dorm room on a regular basis. I can remember playing my rap music on my boom box. I would ask the missionaries if they wanted me to turn the music down. It was not until I served my mission when I learned that the missionaries were not allowed to listen to music. And so for a long time, I thought this was the reason why the missionaries came by my dorm room so often. <laughs> After about a week of daily visits, the missionaries asked if I wanted to take the missionary discussions. My first discussion with the missionaries was in a library on the BYU-Hawaii campus and they showed me the video, The First Vision. The movie talked about Joseph Smith and how at the age of 14, he felt confused about the many different religions. He wanted to learn the truth and to understand more fully the plan of our Heavenly Father. Young Joseph searched the scriptures, and he read in James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. The scripture touched young Joseph, and he decided to exercise his faith and to ask God. Joseph Smith went into a grove of trees, knelt to pray, And as he prayed, he saw a marvelous light, and in the midst of that light, young Joseph saw our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. As I watched this video, I felt in my heart that it was true. Joseph Smith exercised faith, trusted in the Lord, and his prayer was answered. The missionaries continued to teach me the remainder of the fall semester. It was fun. I learned a lot, but I had no desire to join. The next semester, I was again instructed by my advisor that I needed to take a religion course. I decided to take the Book of Mormon. I had no doubt about additional scriptures, because as a Muslim, I had studied the Holy Quran. My Book of Mormon instructor was Brother Gary Smith of the School of Business. I started to read about Nephi, and how as a young man he listened to the Lord. And when Father Lehi instructed his son to return to Jerusalem for the brass plates, Laman and Lemuel complained, whereas Nephi simply said, I will go and do as the Lord commands. For I know the Lord giveth no commandment until the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the things which he commanded them. Nephi exercised faith, trusted in the Lord, and obtained the brass plates. I read on. I read about King Benjamin and how he served the people with all his heart, might, mind, and strength. He loved the people he served, and more importantly, he loved the Lord. During his last days upon the earth, he built a tower so that he might be able to teach the many things pertaining to the kingdom of God. King Benjamin states, I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn that when you are in the service of your fellow being, you are only in the service of your God. King Benjamin served his people as we must serve one another. King Benjamin exercised faith, trusted in the Lord, and brought peace to an entire nation. I read on. I read in 3 Nephi chapter 11 of how the resurrected Lord visited the people on the American continent. The Savior was introduced by his Father. Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. And it came to pass that he stretched forth his hand and spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testify shall come into the world, and I am the light and life of the world, and I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father has given me, and I have glorified the Father and taken upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. The Lord then told the people to arise and come forth, to thrust their hands into his side, to feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet, that they may know that he is the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. The Savior, my Savior, the resurrected Lord extends his hands of mercy and love to all who will come unto him. The Savior, my brother, my friend. I stopped reading. It was near the end of winter semester. I completed my finals and was prepared to return home to the other side of the island. My scholarship did not cover the spring term, And so I was prepared to work for the spring and summer to save money for the fall semester. On the day I was prepared to leave campus, I received a note in my mailbox from Brother Gary Smith, my Book of Mormon teacher. He wanted to see me. I returned to my dorm room and received another note that Brother Gary Smith wanted to see me. I thought to myself, why would he want to see me? Would Brother Smith give me an F grade for religion? No one ever fails religion. I dropped by his office and a secretary mentioned that Brother Smith was at the Seasider, which is a mini-cafe on BYU's campus. As we talked, Brother Smith proceeded to tell me how I knew the Church was true and it was time for me to join the Church. I looked at him amazed and wondered what he had been drinking. <laughs> he continued and said, From what I'm about to tell you, either one or two things will happen—you either join the Church right away or it will take you a while to join the Church. He quoted a scripture in Ether chapter 12, verse 6 that states, and now I, am Moroni, will speak somewhat concerning these things. I will show unto the world that faith is the things which I hope for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not, because ye see not. For ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. I thought to myself, what does the scripture have to do with me? But the Smith explained that he believed that I was waiting for some type of miracle or vision to take place before I would join the church. He said, you need to act upon what you already know to be true before you receive a greater witness wherefore dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Where Brother Smith was right. I thought, why can I receive a vision like the Prophet Joseph Smith? I wanted a greater witness. Well, it took me a while to join the church. I returned to the other side of the island and started to hang out with my friends. Towards the end of the summer, I began to feel somewhat empty, confused, and uncertain. I was missing school and the wonderful feelings I felt at BYU-Hawaii. I knew something was wrong because I couldn't wait to go back to school. (laughs) Two weeks before school was to begin, I received a phone call from Coach Ken Wagner. Coach Wagner was the assistant coach at BYU Hawaii, and during that summer, he received a head coaching job at Dixie College in St. George, Utah. He called and asked if I wanted to play for him at Dixie College. I said yes. And for my first year at Dixie College, I redshirted, and I did not play basketball. This gave me the time to watch the Mormons. As I watched, I noticed there existed at least three types of Mormons. And so I thought, the first type is similar to you. Students that attend institute, take seminary, and take religious courses on a regular basis. They have a glow in their personality and always seem to have a smile on their face. And when tough times come upon them, they know to whom they can trust and that the Lord will help. The second type of Mormon are the ones who realize that they are away from home for the very first time and that no one will know what they are doing. They party, get involved in immoral relationships, and they believe they are having fun when in their heart they feel unhappy. They do not have the glow. The third type of Mormon are the ones that sit on a fence, unsure about who they are, and when the winds of temptation, whether good or bad, blow their way, they follow in its direction. They look confused more than anything else. As I noticed these types of Mormons, I thought, well, Peter, what type of Mormon do you want to be? well, I want to be just like Rick West, my first college roommate at BYU-Hawaii and a return missionary. Bob Barnes, a teammate at Dixie College and a great friend, and Coach Wagner, who helped to understand the importance of family. They have the glow. I thought, well, if I'm going to be a Mormon, I must learn how they date. <laughs> Therefore, I enrolled in an institute class called Dating and Courtship. And I guess the other 28 male students in the class thought the same as I. <laughs> at this time at Dixie College, a good friend, Trudy Smith, began to take the missionary discussions. She invited me to attend with her. This time the sister missionaries taught me about the Church of Jesus Christ. And as you know, the sister missionaries teach the gospel differently than the elders. After each discussion, they used to cry as they shared their testimony. <laughs> and they wanted so much to hug me, but they realized I was against mission rules. Towards the end of the discussions, though, they asked me to do something that the elders did not. They asked me to fast and to pray about the truthfulness of the gospel. I was familiar with fasting. As a Muslim, we fasted during the month of Ramadan, a sacred time for worship. I fasted, and when I was done, I returned to my dorm room at Dixie College, knelt down on my knees, and simply asked Heavenly Father, Is the Book of Mormon the Word of God, and is Joseph Smith a prophet? No, I did not receive a vision or a visit from an angel. I felt warmth in my heart, a feeling I felt many times before, feelings I felt when I attended BYU Hawaii, the feeling I felt when I attended Brother Smith's Book of Mormon class, the feeling I felt when I saw the movie about Joseph Smith. However, this feeling of warmth came when I was by myself, and I knew it came from God. He answered my prayer. I had a testimony. I told the missionaries that I wanted to be baptized but I wanted to return to Hawaii so my mother could witness my joining the church. I thought as soon as I got off the plane, I would find the missionaries and join the church. Well, that didn't happen. I started to hang out with my old friends and return to my old habits. However, towards the end of the summer, those old feelings of uncertainty and confusion returned. In August of 1986, I was home in my room, and I decided to read the Bible. I read in John 14:15, If you love me, keep my commandments. I knew I loved my mother. She is a source of strength in my life. I knew I loved my family, but that I loved God. I knelt down to pray and told my Heavenly Father for the first time that I loved Him. Later that day, I was on my way to the gym to play basketball, and I noticed two missionaries riding their bikes. I almost ran them over. They pulled to the side of the road. I told them to come to my home that night. They thought it was a miracle. The next week... I was baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I returned back to Dixie College and played my sophomore year. We had a great team. We won 32 games and lost only three. I was recruited by several Division I universities. However, I decided to postpone my college education to serve a mission. I was called to serve in Alabama. In Alabama, I met people and families who exercised their faith, trusted in the Lord, and because of their faith, their lives were blessed. One such individual was Sister Eva Oriang from Uganda, Africa. While living in her home country, she held a top political office and served as a prominent member of the government. However, in the summer of 1988, government officials of Uganda received several death threats, and Sister Oriang feared for her life. She left Uganda and arrived in Tuskegee, Alabama, where her oldest son was attending Tuskegee University. After two weeks of living in the U.S., she became discouraged and very depressed. She had left a few of her children and a husband back in Africa, and she was unsure as to when her family would be together again. Back in her country, she learned of God and had faith in Him. And one night she prayed. She prayed all night, even until the next morning. And all she said in her prayer was this, "'Heavenly Father, I know I need a church. Will you please send me the right church first?' In the morning, there was a knock on a door. Her daughter answered the door and returned to her mother's room. "'Mother, you have visitors.' Sister Oriang thought to herself, I'm a stranger in this country. How can I have any visitors? As she went to the door, she thought, America is a strange place. Parents send their children outdoors with names on their shirts. (laughs) The missionaries introduced themselves. Sister Oriang told the missionaries, I have just finished my prayers and asked the Lord to send me the right church. Of course, the missionaries smiled with joy and stated that they were representatives of the right church. As Sister Oriang led the missionaries to the living room, there was another knock on the door. It was a minister of another faith who lived across the street. He had been watching the family for the past week and thought this would be a good time to visit the family. He was an older gentleman, and Sister Orien thought to herself, how can these young boys tell me anything about God? She led the minister into the kitchen. As he sat down, there was another knock on the door. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> Two older sisters of a yet another faith had been proselyting in the area and decided to knock on Oriang's door. She thought to herself, I have just finished my prayer and asked the Lord to send me the right church first. Sister oriang said goodbye to the minister and the two other sisters and listened intently to the missionaries. Within weeks, Sister oriang and her family joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Within a few months, the majority of her family came to the U.S. and they too joined the church. Before the Oriang family joined the church, the Tuskegee branch had about 10 members. Following Sister Oriang's conversion and through her example of faith and testimony, the branch grew from 10 members to over 60 in just nine months, and her son, David Oriang, became the branch president of the Tuskegee branch a few years later. Sister Oriang, like others, are blessed with the fullness of the everlasting gospel and shared this gift with many. She understood the influence and the power of the Holy Ghost and how it helps to change lives and brings people closer to our Heavenly Father. And working with Sister Oriane following her conversion, she helped me to understand the three key ingredients necessary to ensure happiness and peace in this life and a taste of what life would be like in our heavenly home. The key ingredients are faith, family, and friendship. The first ingredient of faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ is essential for us to obtain the power necessary to understand the love that our heavenly Father has for us and his desire for our success. Faith is the power that moves us to repent and instills the desire to improve and to become better. It is through the exercising of faith that allows us to overcome discouragement and heartache as we recognize that the Savior suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane so that the suffering and pain we feel at times can be relieved and peace restored. There is a difference in having faith and exercising faith. Having faith denotes a belief in the Savior, exercising faith denotes action. It is allowing our belief to guide us to pray, to read and study the scriptures, to repent, and to keep the commandments of God. It is the exercising of faith that our belief, knowledge, and love for the Savior grows and strengthen us. The second ingredient is family. Having a solid family relationship is imperative in helping us to understand the principles of forgiveness, service, and selflessness. President Spencer W. Kimball, our 12th president of the church, suggests that it is through families we master the teachings of the gospel of Christ. He states, and I quote, Spirituality is also nurtured in our actions of patience, kindness, and forgiveness towards each other and in our applying gospel principles in the family circle. Home is where we become experts and scholars in gospel righteousness, learning, and living gospel truths, end quote families they come in all shapes and sizes. Some are raised in a single parent home, some are adopted, and yet some are taught and raised by grandparents and other relatives. I was raised by a single parent, and my mother always taught me to have faith and help me to understand the workings of God in our lives. Now I am married, and I have been adopted, if you will, into Stephanie's family, and continue to learn a great deal from in-laws and how important grandparents are in raising and teaching our children. The third ingredient is friendship. President Larry Gibson, state president of the Highland Utah West Stakes, define a friend, and I quote, as one who's attached to another by affection, by esteem, and by respect. It is these attributes that leads to a desire to be with a friend and seeks to promote prosperity and happiness, end quote. Good friends provide support and guidance. In the April 1997 General Conference, President Hinckley, our beloved prophet, declared that every member of the church needs three things, a friend, a responsibility, and nurturing with the good word of God. Later he suggests that becoming a friend is probably the most difficult. To get outside our comfort zone and to extend the hand of friendship is challenging. It takes time to develop friendships, but this is the time we need to take. At some point, we will all be tested. It is a part of life, and when those times come, and they will come, it is a great feeling to know you have a friend at school, at work, or in your ward to show love, to listen to your concerns, to be an example of goodness, and to testify of truth. These are the attributes of friendship. The Savior called us his friends when he said, "'Greater love has no man than this, who layeth down his life for his friends.'" As we study in the book of Proverbs, seventeen seventeen, it states, a friend loves us at all time. We need to take the time to become friends. There are those that you associate with that need your friendship and your support. Brothers and sisters, I know God lives. I know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the only begotten of the Father, our Redeemer, our Savior, and our friend. I know we have a living prophet, even Gordon B. Hinckley, And this is the Lord's church upon the face of the earth. We have been given much. Therefore, we must give of ourselves and incorporate and strengthen the three ingredients of faith, family, and friendships. To ensure happiness and peace in this life and begin to understand in part what life will feel like in our heavenly home. My friends, take full advantage of the Lord's goodness. His arms of mercy and love are extended and all are invited to partake. For the Lord has said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest into your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Savior loves you and he loves me. In the name of Jesus Christ,
0: amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Friendly Influences, with thoughts from Ronald A. Rasband and Peter M. Johnson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.